How did the discipline of virology come to be? Who were the people that realized there was something more than bacteria and fungi in this world to cause disease? This and much more in this episode of the Viral Talk. Before we get to that, I would kindly ask you to follow the Viral Talk on Spotify, Google Podcasts, or any podcasting platform you're listening to this from, to leave a follow on Instagram or X, as there is additional material that gets posted there, and to leave a review on the episode on popechaser.com. But now, without further ado, let's go viral. Hello and welcome to The Viral Talk, the podcast that makes virology easy. I'm your host, as always, Federico, and I'm particularly excited today. That's because in this episode, we will not talk in depth about some technical or scientific aspect of virology of infection, but rather its history as a discipline. Since we all just managed to survive January, which seemed to last 14 years as a month, I thought of having a chill, relaxed, but still fascinating episode on the history of virology so that you can relax, sit down, not worry about having to keep in mind lots and lots of complicated information. So, our story begins in the closing years of the 19th century. To start, I thought it would be cool to state that, although it sounds counterintuitive, the first successful vaccine had been developed before we even knew about viruses at all. The first viral vaccines, in fact, were developed by two very famous individuals, Edward Jenner and Louis Pasteur. Their research was very successful and culminated in the development of the first vaccines to protect against viral infections. Jenner, for example, developed the vaccine for smallpox. Pasteur, on the other hand, for rabies. But never quite figured out what exactly was causing these diseases. Pasteur, in particular, had thought that the cause of rabies could be like a pathogen, maybe too small to be detected using a microscope. But it was only in 1884 when the French microbiologist Charles Chamberland invented a filter with pores so small, with holes so small, that even bacteria could not go through them, that the idea of smaller pathogens started getting, you know, some traction. The invention of this filter, very originally called the Chamberland filter, kick-started a series of experiments that led to the identification of the first virus ever. The tobacco mosaic virus. Yes, you heard that right. The first virus which was ever detected and described was not a humor or even an animal virus, but a plant one. You see, in 1876, a scientist called Adolf Meyer, which was the director of the Agricultural Experimental Station Wageningen, I hope I'm saying this right, in Germany, managed to show that the tobacco mosaic disease which was called as such at the time, was infectious. And uh, slightly later, in 1902, the Russian biologist Dmitry Ivanovsky used precisely the Chamberlain filter to isolate the tobacco mosaic virus. He did quite a simple, but for the time, remarkable experiment. He took some leaves from a sick plant of tobacco, then crushed them, and then filtered the sap, the juice that came out of these leaves, using the Chamberlain filter. It then used this sap, this filtered sap, on healthy tobacco plants and observed that they also became sick. He couldn't be sure what the cause of the disease was 
And initially, he thought it could have been a bacterial toxin. They are much smaller than bacteria that can be produced and also secreted. But when in 1898, the Dutch microbiologist Martinus Pechernik rep repeated and recapitulated, aka got the same results, uh, uh, from the same experiments that Mayer had done, he actually started formulating a different hypothesis. By looking under the microscope, Becherink noticed that the unknown infectious agent could multiply only in living cells. And so he called it a contagium vivum fluidum, which is uh, in Latin that literally means a soluble living germ. And at the same time, he reintroduced the Latin term virus. Now, from in Latin, virus initially meant poison. And in fact, in Pasteur's day, so before all of this, and for many years after his death, the word virus was used to describe any cause of infectious disease. Many bacteriologists at the time had already discovered the cause of numerous uh, diseases and had uh, correctly understood that they were due to bacterial infections. But some diseases, many of them horrendous, still remain that had no bacterial cause that could be found. So uh, the only thing that was known is that these agents were invisible and could only be grown in living animals. Anyway, in the same year, same year as Becherich uh, identified that uh, the, the viruses could only be, these pathogens could only be uh, replicating in living cells, two German bacteriologists called Friedrich Löffle and Paul Frosch, I, I really hope I'm not butchering these names, probably am, passed the first animal virus for a similar filter and identified the cause of foot and mouth disease. The first ever animal virus for, that was identified causing a specific disease. This was so important because their work marked the beginning of understanding how animal and in particular mammal viruses work. Foot and mouth disease virus caused disease in cloven hoofed animals, so cattle, sheep, pigs. And during the years has caused great economic losses to the animal farming industry. So we could actually say that the identification of FME, or food and mouth virus, paved the way for many advancements in diagnostic techniques and vaccine development for us and for animals. But if we want to find out when the first human virus was discovered, we actually have to travel to Cuba, because the first human virus to ever be discovered was the yellow fever virus. And it was discovered in Cuba because there, it actually played a very important role in the late 19th, early 20th century. To put it simply, for every soldier who died in battle during the American-Spanish War, which, was, which took place during those years, 13 soldiers died of yellow fever. So you can actually imagine the kind of impact that this pathogen has both in the trenches but also outside of them. This virus probably originated as a human virus in Central Africa and then was introduced in the Americas and finally in Europe through the slave trade in the 1500s. This disease, the ye yellow fever, is caused by the originally called yellow fever virus, <laughs> an arbovirus 
which means a virus that is transmitted by an arthropod, such as a mosquito or a tick. Upon infection, many people do not experience symptoms. In fact, common symptoms, the ones that do, however, have common symptoms like fever, muscle pain, headache, loss of appetite, nausea or vomiting. And in most cases, these symptoms disappear after three to four days. A small percentage of patients, however, enter a second, more toxic phase after 24 hours of recovering from the initial symptoms. High fever returns and several body systems are affected, usually the liver and the kidneys. In this phase, people are likely to uh, develop jaundice, which is basically the yellowing of the skin and eyes. That's why the name yellow fever dark urine, abdominal pain with vomiting, and sometimes even bleeding from mouth, nose, etc. So, I mean, you get the gist. It's a very, very awful disease to get, to get. But that's not even the worst part. About half of the patients who enter this toxic phase die within 7 to 10 days. So you can imagine how in the 19th century this meant a lot of people because we were also lacking all the basic care treatments that would probably avoid infected individuals to enter this toxic phase. But anyway, I, I digress. Even though the virus was introduced into Europe and Americas a long time prior, we still have to wait until 1881 when Carlos Finley, which was a Cuban physician, first conducted and published research that indicated that mosquitoes were carrying the cause of yellow fever, which was still not known at the time. So it wasn't only was a virus, but uh, Carlos Finlay actually managed to identify the mosquito as some sort of a carrier, carrier of the disease. He could not definitely prove it, but he paved the way for another person to crack the origin of yellow fever and to understand that it was a virus. In fact, in the year 1900, Dr. Walter Reed, which was a US Army major, led a commission to investigate the cause of yellow fever outbreaks that had plagued Cuba during the Spanish-American War. He started collaborating with scientists like Jesse Lazar and James Carroll, and his team conducted experiments to confirm that uh, it was the mosquito species Aedes aegypti, which is the one that's found here, is the one that's found that also uh, brings malaria, is the one found in Europe, um, was the mosquito species responsible to transmit the virus. Their groundbreaking work then established the mosquito as a vector, but also led to a, to a revolution in the way we also now understand viral diseases. And uh, this discovery was actually particularly important because knowing that the virus is transmitted through mosquitoes gave politicians, gave the government, the Cuban government, but also the US government, a target that they could actually control. Because by controlling the mosquito population, for example, by... Um, by getting rid of bugs, by getting rid of all those wet, damp places where mosquitoes tend to reproduce, they could actually curb the spread of yellow fever, not just of the, of the mosquito. 
In fact, during 1901 and 1902, a certain politician called William Crawford Gorgas organized the destruction of mosquitoes breeding habitats in Cuba, which dramatically reduced the prevalence of the disease. Gorgas also later organized the eliminations of mosquito from Panama, which allowed the Panama Canal to be opened in 1914. And finally, the virus was completely isolated, which means that it was identified and taken out of mosquitoes and could actually be observed even under the microscope by Max Thelier in 1932, which was also the person who managed to develop a very successful vaccine. Needless to say, the realization of the existence of these dreadful microbes also allowed to understand the causative agents of other deadly diseases from the past. The Spanish flu, for instance. So, for people that have no idea what I'm talking about, the Spanish flu is the incorrect name for the worst flu pandemic in the history of the world. It took place between 1918 and 1920 as an exceptionally deadly global influenza pandemic caused by the avian influenza strain H1N1. What does H1N1 mean? Uh, basically, the influenza viruses are segmented viruses, meaning that their genome is fragmented into multiple segments. They're not like SARS-CoV-2, which was a single genome, a linear genome, but actually their genome is divided in eight different pieces. Two of these pieces are called, in, are called respectively, hemagglutinin and neuraminidase. So hemagglutinin is shortened in H, and neuraminidase is shortened in N. The fact that they have numbers comes from the fact that there are multiple types of hemagglutinin and neuraminidases in influenza viruses across the globe. And because these viruses are segmented, they can also mix and match with each other. So if you have an H1N1 virus, uh, influenza virus, it means that you have the type 1 of both hemagglutinin and neuraminidase genes in their genome, and also, respectively, their proteins. But there are H3N2 viruses, uh, influenza viruses, so they have type 3 hemagglutinin and type 2 neuraminidase, and God forbid an H3N2 and an H1N1 influenza virus infect the same cell, that then they can mix match like they're some sort of salad and they, their progeny could also have uh, like the H from one virus and the N from the other virus, such as like an H, H1N2 or H3N1 and so on and so forth. It's very complicated and I promise I will make a special episode or actually not even just a special episode, just an episode focusing on influenza A virus, influenza, because it's one of the most, the biggest uh, pathogens that we have to deal with and that we'll still have to deal with for the foreseeable future. So I promise I will make an episode only on influenza virus. But anyway, sorry, I'm digressing again. The, I was saying that the discovery of yellow fever as a human virus, and generally the discovery of viruses as entities that, do, that could cause disease, also allowed to share some light on previous pandemic, previous mysterious diseases that had no 
um, origin because we simply did not have the technology nor the knowledge to understand that those were viruses, so pathogens smaller than bacteria. And this was certainly the case for avian flu and the Spanish flu. So the earliest documented case of Spanish flu was March 1918 in the state of Kansas in the United States. After that, there were further lots, lots of cases recorded in France, Germany, and the United Kingdom in April. Long story short, two years later, nearly a third of the global population, or an estimated 500 million people, had been infected in four successive uh, waves. So as we've seen for SARS-CoV-2, that there's always like, you know, uh, COVID-19 waves. That was also the case for influenza. The estimates of deaths ran, range from 17 million to 50 million. And some even say, some scientists also say that it's possibly as high as 100 million, making it one of the deadliest pandemic in history, if not the deadliest. Now, the pathogen responsible for influenza was incorrectly identified in 1892 by RFJ Pfeiffer as the bacteria species Haemophilus influenzae, which retains influenza in its name, which was then associated with the viral pathogen. However, in, su in succeeding years, the field of virology began to form as viruses were identified as the causes of many diseases. So from 1901 to 1903, Italian and Austrian researchers were able to show that avian influenza, which is a cousin of the human influenza, which at the time was called foul plague, was caused by a microscopic agent smaller than bacteria by using the, you guessed it, Chamberlain filter. The fundamental differences between viruses and bacteria, however, were not yet fully understood at the time. During the 1918 pandemic, the respiratory route of transmission for influenza had been identified, and influenza was shown to be caused by a filter passer not a bacterium. But there remained a lack of agreement about influenza's cause for another decade. It was in 1931 that we have to wait for when Richard Shope published three papers identifying a virus as the cause of swine influenza and the newly recognized disease among pigs that was characterized during the second wave of the 1918 pandemic. Just two years after this, in 1933, Influenza A virus was identified as the agent responsible for human influenza. However, these were all experimental procedures, which is very laborious, and we still had no idea what these pathogens looked like under the microscope. In fact, it was not until the invention of the electron microscope, which happened in 1931 by a German engineer called Ernst Ruska and Max Noll, that virus particles in particular bacteriophages, which are viruses of bacteria, were shown to have complex structures. The size of viruses determined using this new microscope fitted well with those estimated by filtration experiments using the ver various variants of the Chamberlain filter. In fact, viruses were expected to be small, however, the range of sizes of the viruses came actually as a surprise. In fact, while some were only a little smaller than the smallest known bacteria, so they could be 
effectively comparable in size, the smallest viruses were of similar sizes to complex organic molecules. So things that are found inside the cell, they're just molecules. They're not even, rep they do not have the ability to reproduce, to do anything. They just serve a specific goal inside our cells. Anyway, in 1935, Wendell Stanley, another scientist, examined the tobacco mosaic virus and found that it was mostly made of protein. And then in 1939, Stanley and Max Laufer separated the virus into protein and nucleic acid, which was shown by Stanley's postdoctoral researcher Hubert Loring to be specifically RNA. And this is a phenomenal discovery, because the discovery of RNA in the viral particles led, in 1928, Fred Griffith to provide the first evidence that its cousin, DNA, formed genes. So as you can see, the history of virology is actually very tightly correlated with the history of general biology. And with many, so many of the discoveries that actually now form and describe the world and our life as we know it today. After this, we could say that there, there would be the boom of virology as a subject, as, um, as a discipline, because the second half of the 20th century was basically the golden age of virus discovery, with mo where most of the 2,000 recognized species of animal, plant, and bacterial viruses were discovered. In 1946, for example, Bovine virus diarrhea was discovered, which is still possibly the most common pathogen of cattle throughout the world. In 1957, equine artery viruses were discovered. In the 50s, improvements in virus isolation and detection methods resulted in the discovery of many important human viruses, such as varicella, paramyxoviruses, which include measles and respiratory syncytial virus, and rhinoviruses that cause the common cold. In the 60s, more viruses were discovered. For example, in 63, the hepatitis B virus was discovered by Baruch Blumberg. Reverse transcriptase, which is the key enzyme that retroviruses like HIV used to translate their RNA into DNA, was first described independently by Howard Temin and David Baltimore. This was very important for the development of some of the first antiviral drugs, which was a key turning point in the history of viral infections. That's because reverse transcriptase enzyme, which is this very important enzyme that retroviruses use, is something that we humans, but also other animals, do not have and do not express in ourselves. So effectively, by designing some drugs that could target that enzyme, but would, we would have a silver bullet, we could say, that would be able to target the virus without harming us. Before that, many antiviral treatments were just general treatments that would be also very toxic for us, so they would probably stop the virus, but it would also make us feel very, very sick. Then in 1983, Luc Montagnier and his team at the Pasteur Institute in France first isolated the retrovirus now called as HIV, in 89, Michael Houghton's team and Kieron 
Corporation discovered hepatitis C. And then again, new viruses and strains of viruses were discovered in every decade of the second half of the 20th century. These discoveries have continued in the 21st century as new viral diseases such as SARS, the Nipah virus, which have emerged recently. And I've also briefly talked about them in one of the first episodes of the podcast, which is Emerging Viral Diseases. And, but we have to bear in mind that despite scientist achievement over the past 100 years, viruses still continue to pose new threats and challenges. We are constantly surveilling the environment for potential new emerging viruses that we have never encountered before. And I think that the COVID-19 pandemic is the perfect example of a virus that was not known before, that just jumped from an animal into human and caused the things that we've had to live through. And it's not even over yet. Just recently, in fact, there's been a very, very interesting paper that just came out that I still need to finish reading that has described for the first time some viroid-like structures inside cells. So things that effectively resemble viruses but are not quite viruses and they've been classified as a new entity, a new biological entity never described before. So as you can see, things are pretty hot at the minute. We're still discovering new things and we're clearly not done Virology is a very, we could say, a relatively young discipline, but there's lots that's being done, lots that still needs to be doing, and yeah, I think, I think I'm probably gonna close on that. I'm actually pretty happy with it. <laughs> Having said so, uh, we have reached the end of this episode. Um, I hope you've enjoyed it as much as I have enjoyed talked about it. I think that the history of virology is actually quite fascinating. It's very much intertwined with the history of biology as a whole and has had a very important role in the discoveries that are now basically common knowledge about how life works and how cells reproduce and what's DNA and so on and so forth. Before I say goodbye, however, I would like to remind you all to subscribe to The Viral Talk on Spotify or any podcasting platform you are listening to this podcast from, it really is a massive help. To follow The Viral Talk on Instagram and X, because oftentimes there's additional material that I post in there, on, in these two um, platforms, uh, that are usually related to the topics of the episodes that are published. And... To, if you like this episode, to leave a review on podchaser.com. It really is a massive help. It helps me reach different, different audiences, new people, and in general, it helps the podcast grow. See you next time. Thank you very much for listening, and let's go viral.